It's weird being the only woman in the room. The large majority of complaints about women is around their appearance. What makes you angry? Injustice, things that are unfair. The first key to being free is recognising that your freedom isn't going to come from the hands of your oppressor. I feel insanely entitled to exist. I'm exactly where I probably should be. And I don't have to apologise for that. Welcome to another episode of Brazen, the podcast sharing incredible stories from incredible women. I'm Susie Ferguson, and in this episode, we're going to hear from someone who describes themselves as a social justice warrior, hoping to reshape the pale male stale world of law. Julia Faiporti is the chair of Just Speak, a network of young people speaking up for a more fair and just Aotearoa. Julia also works as an advisor to the Children's Commissioner, Judge Andrew Beecroft, and sits on the board of the Drug Foundation. She's super sharp, she pulls no punches, and is not at all afraid of a little discomfort. Julia is of Ngati Parau descent, hails from the East Coast, and that's where she begins her story. I was born in Gisborne. Both my parents are from the coast Ngati Parau ways, Dad, Rotoria, and Mum Tararo in Hicks Bay. So first few years of my life was in Aotearoa, but then we moved across to Australia when I was three, because Mum wanted to go find work and all of that. Mum and Dad left without us actually in the beginning, so they could find some work. And Mum fraudulently enrolled my dad in the police, <laughs> and he started police college. He got a letter and she told him, well, what, you've been accepted into the police and you can go into police college. So I spent the first almost half of my life over in Aussie before we ended up coming back. And when you were over there, were you connected to other Māori in the area? Did you come back for holidays? How did you experience that growing up? I actually think it's like a really big point of how I can do the work that I do here at the moment was the fact that I, over in Australia, was just a girl. And I could exist in that way. And also, I'm a lighter colour than my mum and my brother particularly. They're much darker. And so I could just be my full self without feeling the burden of of things um, from societal lens. So very much raised with the values that I think are part of being Māori. But we just didn't have names or labels for them, just as how it is, because my parents instilled that kind of stuff in us. Yeah, but it wasn't until we came back when I was like 14 or 15 that I became acutely aware that I was Māori and that meant something different to New Zealand. And, and what made you realise that, that you were Māori and that was a difference in a thing? So I always knew I was Māori, always knew I was Ngāti Purau, but those were just facts. They're just like fact of my being. We moved to Marlborough, Blenheim, which is like a pretty, pretty parker town. And I just became aware at school that I was... It was almost like reverse targeted, like it was like hit up to be a prefect, hit up and celebrated because I was really exceptional, but it became very apparent that it was because I was Māori and I was pretty hoha back then. I was sort of like, I'm good because I'm good, not because I'm Māori and sort of had that kind of reaction at the time. I truly think that if I grew up here, I probably would have carried the burden of what it means to be Māori in the day-to-day and I wouldn't be as righteous or as free or as confident to, to do the work that I do or to advocate the way that I do because I feel insanely entitled to exist as who I am and who we are and I don't have to apologise for that. 
So, you know, what do you mean by saying if you'd done that those early years here, mm. you'd be in a different place? Why do you say that? I think that the, and we can see that statistically, but the way that people perceive what it means to be Māori and how that's defined through colonial lens and through the structures that we exist in education or schooling and the expectations placed on Māori every day is lower. And I didn't experience that. I didn't experience that somehow being Māori as defined by people stopping you in the shops or having police in your life or just expected to go into subjects that aren't like the science and the maths and the English when we get our kids channeled into doing things that are like home economics and like trade classes. It doesn't allow us to just be and make our own pathways. There are things that are expected of us and it's lower. I'm interested in this because you did a lot of your growing up in Australia, mm. which is also a colonised society. Mm. Why do you think it was different? Well, we're not Indigenous to Australia. The experience for Indigenous cultures is the same in colonised countries. The incarceration rates, the oppression and stolen land and culture and all of that stuff. That was not our experience in Australia. And so there was almost, I think, for Australians, there's another group to hate that doesn't involve me or being, or Māori. There was this other group to hate. So that gave us privilege and leverage. As Tangata Whenua of New Zealand, we forget that we're on other people's land and we benefit from not being hated on. And that's shit, straight up. So... What do you think about having spent a big chunk of your life somewhere else? Did you think about it at the time that you were on someone else's land? No, not at all. I don't think I, um, I wasn't aware of racism. I wasn't aware. You, you didn't have the words for it. I mean, I can look back as an adult now and I can look at experiences that I saw within my own whānau and, and attach those kinds of things on it but you just live your best life I mean this is the greatest gift my parents gave to me was just the ability to live my best life to go out play sport do stuff to be confident and to expect that I'm entitled or deserve to be heard and be seen so I was just able to be a kid and I think that that is a beautiful thing but you come back at the age where you start asking questions so around 14 15 I started going why is this like that and why is that like that so I came home at the right time. Colonisation it's more than 250 years now since Captain James Cook first sighted Aotearoa. Has colonisation stopped? No not at all we exist in laws and policies and structures founded of colonisation which comes off a fundamental white supremacist belief that white culture was better than what we had here going on. Uh, I think the incarceration of our people, the fact that over half our prisons are filled with Māori, that almost three quarters of our kids who are in what I call kid prisons and are taken from whānau are Māori, that almost 80% of our young ones who get remanded into kid prisons as well are Māori, that our education experiences are lower, but that the structures are still fundamentally come from a colonial perspective. Even the way our courts operate, that doesn't even work. I mean, New Zealand's unique in our culture, both with Pākehā culture and as Indigenous people here. And we've just happily continued to run off the structures that were placed on us when Cook arrived and since the treaty. So why do you think a lot of people probably think that colonialism was something that happened a long time ago? then and isn't something that continues on now because it's more comfortable to think that way and it takes away responsibility and, and accountability 
I think it's hard to take ownership and, and think, oh, I'm a benefactor of, of really shit colonial white supremacist practice. That's a hard thing I think people struggle with on a personal level, on a broader like place in community. By people, I'm talking about Pākehā New Zealand, I think that all New Zealanders should be proud of who we are. And that means accepting the truth and the reality of our histories in order that we know how to move forward. I mean, colonialism looks like an education system that has proactively made sure that our history wasn't taught in schools. That's what it looks like. So we've got generations of people who come, who grew up in New Zealand, who don't know the atrocities that have happened in our history and from Pākehā ancestors or white New Zealand who came through in the first place. But also the promises as well for white New Zealand when they arrived here, settlers, like they had been sold a dream and lies as well. But it is far more comfortable not to accept the wrongs of our past and to think of it as something that is disconnected from our own responsibilities. And so how do we right the wrongs? How do we make things better? I think it is an ongoing journey. Um, Jean Margaret, you know, she's a treaty educator, Pākehā woman who talks about the Pākehā nation and how important it is as Pākehā to own being Pākehā and what does that mean? Knowing who you are, and that is informed because we're in New Zealand, that is informed through a Māori lens. Pākehā does not exist without Māori. Um, So being active about learning who you are, learning our history and how structures and systems have been created that you benefit from. If you're a Pākehā New Zealand, you benefit off colonisation. That doesn't mean you stole my land. That doesn't mean that you're racist, but you benefit from our racist history and colonisation. And you need to sit with that and own it and go, what does that look like? Because it's not very comfortable, right? 100% not. I mean, no one likes to be uncomfortable in this way, but that's also a part of your privilege where you can choose not to engage. You can choose to say, that's in the past, I don't need to know about this. So I'm saying to you that you have to exercise the privilege to make the decision to engage. When I wake up every morning, well, not every morning, because it's usually dark, but when I wake up every morning on the weekend and I open the curtains and I look into my garden and onto the water at Evans Bay, I do wonder whose land that is that I live on now. And I don't know sometimes what the right way to engage with that is. Um... The Waitangi Tribunal is like a record of our history, so I'd like go there. But not everyone's kind of that dorky as well. Like, <laughs> that's not a fun or sexy thing to do. But I'm just thinking about... Are you saying I'm dorky? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm just trying to talk to, you know, <laughs> the dorky people in the world, go to the Waitangi Tribunal. But I was just thinking about this moment only last week. I've mm. been out on the road talking with whānau who have had the experience of Waitangi Tamariki in their lives making sure that their words are given life and that. But I was sitting at my desk doing that and the endeavour, the replica was coming into the harbour and then one of my friends, Parker, was in the office and the excitement because they rushed to my window to say, look, it's coming in, taking photos. And that juxtaposition, like I know the people that I'm, that I'm working with and have good hearts and uh, an openness to owning shit. But that's the reality that that was seen as a really beautiful thing. And in that moment, when I'm listening to interviews of mamas who have had, by the powers of the state, promised that if they got rid of one child, they could keep the other children. That is the level of what colonisation looks like. It's not just this abstract concept, historical thing that happened. It was like a 
really uncomfortable feeling and also a reality of what it means to be in New Zealand. My particular issues around the replica is just the amount of money. Yeah, it's just a misplaced sort of celebration or recognition to put millions of dollars to build this stunning boat without knowing that that is that brought in syphilis and alcohol and the patu of laws that took away Maori language and culture actively tried to do that. Why would you build this big, huge waka to show us that? I mean, that that was like a so like trigger for some of us. What did you make of the expression of regret that was given by the British High Commissioner Laura Clark when the endeavour first came to near Gisborne? I think that's good. I think it was a beautiful thing. That happened in Tairawhiti from the East Coast and that's where I'm where I live and mm. our iwi chose not to have a pōhiri to welcome in the endeavour because why would we do that? I think that owning it and recognising it, I think that that was a, a powerful symbolic act and necessary in order for us to move, move forward. Um, to talk more about some of the way that New Zealand has worked through its colonial history, through the treaty settlements, I think is it three cents in the dollar in terms of value that Māori got back for the land that was stolen? That doesn't sound like a good deal, eh? Well, no, in a economic, in an economic sense, but I guess treaties aren't made to be settled. They're made to be honoured, and it's a relationship that hasn't been, still isn't. I mean, there are moves and gestures and policy documents written about it, but every day it's it's not honoured. Every day when we don't have as people decision-making powers on things that affect us, where we have a treaty settlement process that was designed in a kawanatanga space and Pākehā courts that say, oh, we'll talk about how the treaty is going to be settled here. When the initial fiscal cap for the treaty settlements was a billion dollars and we spend one and a half billion dollars every year locking up Māori, that's a violence. Or, you know, hear Nader Glavish talk about would our tūpuna ancestors have signed the treaty if they knew that um, you were going to lock our people up and isolate them from the communities of which we belong, which before colonisation was the worst thing that could ever happen to be separated from Fano, or that you were going to take our babies. They would never have signed over that power. And now we have to fight to be given the chance to do that for ourselves. Do you think a lot of Pākehā fail to recognise the treaty and fail to take it into account because I've encountered several instances where it hasn't been considered when a policy's been drawn up. And so suddenly at the end, it's like a tick box. Oh, what's the relationship to, uh, to Tiriti? Oh, I don't know. Did Pākehā treat it as an afterthought and Māori treat it as a starting point? 100%. Particularly in our government agencies, you have many people who are not equipped with that knowledge because our education system has not given that knowledge. But then there comes a responsibility to find that knowledge, but the exercise of privilege means that many Pākehā don't. Oh, I think about... I think about um, so I haven't been on the Justice Advisory Group for the last year with the likes of Chester Burroughs and Tracy McIntosh and Ruth Money. The main learning for me is the power that sits within bureaucracies and the rigidity of those structures, that there is no accountability within there. You have all of these Pākehā, like every single government agency has improving outcomes for Māori is the number one thing. 
why can't we be the ones who are in charge of what does that look like? You've got all of these people like taking up space but who cannot see that perhaps that's not the experts in doing this, but we have a system that just lets that breathe and sit and continue to be like that. It's not the fault of individuals, it's the fault of a structure and a system that has, in our history, that has allowed that to happen. All of these people working in places that are like, how are we improving outcomes for Māori? What are you doing to understand um, what does that look like and who are you talking to the right people and are you the best people to be making those decisions for us? Tell me about some of your your personal, your whānau experience within some of these colonial structures. You obviously are really successful, but it hasn't worked out well for everyone, eh? I think that to be Māori and be working in these spaces, it doesn't matter whether you got PhDs, law degrees, money falling out of trees. You cannot not be personally affected by our whānau who have been removed by the state, whether that's through locking them up in prisons, whether that's by ignoring... Um, often mamas who are calling out for help or who won't do that because they're more scared of the response from the police. But yeah, I mean, within my, my own father, I'm out there talking about prison transformation, justice transformation, what does that look like for New Zealand when I have my own whānau breathing in prison at the moment. I'm very aware of the push for systemic change is needed so that our structures don't cause more harm. And also the reality of what it means to uh, have people in your own whānau who you're trying to uh, support who are hurting our own whānau. Like, and I'm, in a, I'm very fortunate that we have a really strong whānau that can take care of ourselves. And it's still really quite personally difficult to go, how can we change these things for ourselves? How do we change these things? I think it's everyday actions and belief you know justice joe williams talks about that we cannot give up hope like it can feel overwhelming and hopeless and if we were to say it's too hard then that means to give up on our mokopuna and to give up and i just kind of refuse to do that i spoke at the maori women's welfare league hui this year about how the year i was born Tatatū came out and moana jackson's Ho came out that talked about all the shit realities that remain true today in terms of statistics and experiences of Māori at the hands of the state. And how now I'm 31 and all of those remain true today. Nothing has changed. It's, there was a bit of a whittle for me because I think it's for us as Māori to challenge Māori. Not in front of Parker though, but <laughs> to say what are we doing to change things for our people. And then I had one fire and she came up to me and said she had been part of supporting Poao Tatatū and writing it and then she was having a big tongue in her heart because then she knew actually nothing has changed. Things have changed but also nothing has changed and what does that mean? She, and she said, we went from hope, which was Poao Tatatū, hope, okay, we're going to own what's going on in New Zealand and we're going to listen and hear the solutions that are set out there that have never been honoured and it's now time to shift to hopi, which is like expectation and action. You think about the All Blacks doing the haka and then they're getting really like hopi when they get ready to to go so I hold on to the hopi we have active acts to do every day in our personal lives and our working spheres our spheres of influence and particularly Parker talking to Parker. I think I work with a great man I've worked with a great Parker man Judge Andrew Beecroft at the Children's Commission and 
he says things that people like the Leonie Pihamas have been saying forever, Nick Sykes have been saying forever, but different people listen when he talks. It makes me really sad. Yeah. And angry. Both of those things. I mean, I always have this rage in my soul, but then that always triggers me into action always because I can't accept this. <laughs> you know, like my own personal life, I'm materially fine of like married to a beautiful intelligent parkour woman i'm well supported by my whanau and the community that i exist in and it for as long as i suppose i'm uh, breathing i have a real responsibility as a mukupuna i'm the reflection of my ancestors and at the same time i'm also a tupuna which means we have mokopuna who are coming after us that I'm responsible to. And that means that I will do everything that I can so that they can stand on our shoulders and be allowed to breathe more and just be. We want to be Māori with a little M because Māori means natural and normal. They shouldn't be political acts just to find our language to go to our marae. I mean, next weekend my mother and I are going up home and we're going to get our mokokowai together. That was a right of our tūpuna. And it is very political for me to be doing that, but that's part of my responsibility as a tūpuna as well, to my mukupuna, that they will know that it's uh, very natural and okay to be Māori. Um, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. Why did you decide to do that and why now? <laughs> my wife probably gets quite whole of me because I have quite like fast decision making so I was quite colonised in my own thinking for Mokokowai was that oh I don't have the reo and I can't karanga I'm not Māori enough that's a colonised view on what that is now because to say that you have to achieve these certain things is a very Pākehā meritocracy approach which is not actually the truth of our right to where what is us it's a reflection of who you are on the inside it's just being brought to the light and so um I've had a few people say I should get it done at different points in time but there's nothing like going to another country and finding yourself so, so I was on my honeymoon in Mexico and then I received a message to say there's a mokopapa happening up home so I should get my kowai and I was like lols and told Emma my wife someone said to do this no, 100% not going to do it for the reasons that I've just said. And then she was like, okay, she went to sleep and then she woke up. And I was like, okay, I've decided I'm getting it done. Because <laughs> in that time process, in that time, I was like, what is the work that I do? And I'm unapologetically Māori and I will create spaces that are unapologetically allow us to be and just thrive. And who am I then to say that I will not take kowai because of this? How do you go about choosing what you want it to represent? Well, you trust in the tamoko, I suppose, artist. I won't see it until they put it on my face because they bring to light our kōrero and what it means. And that's their, that's their gift. And if I was going into it being like, I want to make sure I look pretty or anything like that, then I'm not ready for it. I've hand over that trust and power to our tōhunga to be able to bring to light who I am and what it means to me. That sounds amazing, but it sounds like it's quite a, not a leap. Is it a leap? I don't know. <laughs> you speak to my wife, she'll be like, oh, <laughs> how do you <laughs> go from here to there? I mean, 
I've been talking about giving strength to our mukapuna to feel secure to be us. I went to my mum because I was like, I need you to come with me, of course. And then she talked about how she had a calling to get one but wasn't brave enough to do it. And I knew then that there's no way I'm going to do it without my mum. And I knew if I got it done, she said that will be enough. She'll feel like you're wearing it for our whanau. And I was like, no, I'm this is my like my right as it is your right and you're going to come and do it with me so she left into that decision too like I said earlier like I have this outrageous sense of entitlement to exist as who I am in order that all the people in our lives can have that same entitlement so I suppose it's a it's a, it's a leap and like quite a fast transition but it's just the timing and and I want to have babies soon and I want my children to all only know me this way tell me about the babies um, well, me and Emma always wanted to be mamas, I guess. And I think we're ready for that. Or ready to start trying. Like, we'll hopefully all things being equal. Like, my childbearing property is all in check and so is Emma's. So, but we also have the privilege of having two wombs to choose from. But <laughs> if things don't work out, and it seems quite easy, you can go out and get it, ingredients from many places. But, um... Yeah, we've always known since we've been together that we want to have children. There's probably been a period of time where there were other children in, in our lives that we had to be more directly responsible for. Because Fano in prison, you know, the rest of the Fano wrap around, and me and them were very much, very much, very active and still remain active. But they're all good and thriving, and we are ready to start trying. And I think part of being Takatapu in a gay relationship means you have to want this these babies so much we have to do it on purpose we can't accidentally get pregnant so there's a lot of aroha that goes into wanting these mokopuna that will come yeah but we'll venture into the trying and the doing you know we've got a good friend who who's from the right coast <laughs> from the right coast there's only one coast in New Zealand as far as I'm concerned it's the east coast North Island um <laughs> And we can just try that. I was going to say naturally, but that involves like turkey-based stuff. And see how that goes for a while. And if it doesn't work out, then um, we'll go from there. Okay. You've talked a lot about your wedding. Were you... I don't know. You don't choose who you fall in love with. But (laughs) were you surprised that it was a white woman? Um, It's kind of funny because like... I get hoha when um, Parker's all like, I'm married to a Māori or I've got Māori children, therefore, like it's used as a therefore I am not racist or I'm aware or I understand. But I always am like, <laughs> because given the work that I do and I'm all, you know, colonisation instructions, blah, blah, I do the I do the same in reverse where I'm like, oh, but I'm married to a Parker, so I'm, <laughs> so I'm all good. Um, nah, probably, like I wasn't surprised. I mean, I really get feelings like for someone and Emma's a someone who my heart moved for very quickly and still does today of course obviously but she's also a Parker and she can speak for herself but she's also a Parker who is one of those people who owns what it means to be Parker and be proud of her own identity and actually really proactive about understanding the benefits that she has as a Pākehā woman from the structures that came about through colonisation. She works in she works in the field as well, representing Māori to reclaim back places through a Pākehā system. She's a lawyer 
and also does treaty education as well. She's really proactive in applying her privilege. We're almost like the Ted Tiddity couple. Like, you know, we want to... I mean, and now Vowsel's talking about, like, like aspiring to be the relationship and partnership that were the aspirations of both our tūpuna. Yeah, that our ancestors had a dreams and aspirations of how that relationship would look and that's what we committed to in our wedding is that that we want to honour the the vision of what Te Tiriti looked like in our own personal relationship. Julia Faipoti, Chair of Just Speak and Advisor to the Children's Commissioner, Judge Andrew Beecroft. And talk about walking the talk, honouring the vision of Titriti in her very marriage vows. Brilliant, awesome stuff. In that interview, Julia mentioned an expression of regret from the British High Commissioner for the Māori killed when James Cook arrived in 1796. In the next episode of Brazen, we'll hear from the British High Commissioner herself, Laura Clark. It was quite a personal thing. It was very much based on those relationships and on that very human need for acknowledgement, for that story to be properly heard and acknowledged and for that pain to be properly heard and acknowledged. But it was also absolutely the position of the British government that this was the right thing to do. That's in the next episode of Brazen and it's out right now. As always, you can subscribe to Brazen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And do that if you haven't already. Keep visiting the website too, brazen.world, for more content. Brazen's hosted by me, Susie Ferguson, and was created by me, Lou O'Reilly, Vic McLennan and David Cormack. Brazen's produced and edited by Melody Thomas. It's engineered by William Saunders. The theme is Be Who You Are by Edie. The artwork is by Pepper Raccoon. And all transcriptions are done by Emma Hart. Kakiteano. <laughs> <laughs>